Welcome to DocuTalks, a podcast about documentaries mostly from Netflix. Chelsea and Michelle may be from two different generations, but they both share a passion for talks of true crime, murder, and documentaries with flair. Join these chatty bitches while they dish the latest hot documentary on DocuTalks. Welcome to DocuTalk. I'm Michelle. And I'm Chelsea. Uh, so this episode, we're going to be covering Fox Catcher, but just a warning that this is adult content. We discuss difficult topics, and at times we use explicit language. So Chelsea, what's new with you? Oh, not too much. Uh, so I've been watching Teenage Bounty Hunters on Netflix, which, you know, they only did one season of, and I'm very disappointed. Netflix has just recently canceled a whole bunch of my favorite you know, female-driven, female empowerment-based shows, and this is one of them. And I was just really sad when I watched it because it was such a good show, and it was about so many important issues and and focused on so many great things without over-sexualizing their cast members. And it's just sad that, you know, all these shows are getting canceled, but then they're coming out with things like Emily in Paris, which... No Tino shade, I love Emily in Paris, but there's there's nothing of substance there. <laughs> <laughs> so Netflix, we love you, but stop canceling all the good shows. <laughs> Michelle, what's up with you? Well, I started watching Girls on HBO. I never saw it at the time when it came out. I don't know why. I don't think I had HBO or Crave at the time. So I decided to start watching it. And I actually, I quite like it. I had a few of my friends say to me that they didn't really get into it because they thought the main character was just a bit too whiny and complaining. But I actually feel it's kind of similar to Roseanne in terms of it's kind of just real life and not glamorized. And certainly the sexual scenes are not glamorized. So Which I love. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of appreciate that, right? That it's a little mm-hmm. bit more realistic that way. And, and this weekend, I'm actually at a girls' weekend, so I'm just um, taking a bit of a break to do the podcast. But I forgot my regular headset, so hopefully our sound comes out okay. <laughs> I don't know. I really thought I packed it, but that's okay. <laughs> so we're covering Foxcatcher. So what what did you think of this one, Chelsea? You know. I was a bit apprehensive why Michelle had suggested we cover Foxcatcher. I was just like, eh, doesn't look that great from the preview <laughs> when I watched it. But I ended up watching it and liking it. And I did like that it was another one of those. Um, it's true crime, but it's it also has sports in it and, and deals with deeper other issues, social issues, um, the issues of just privilege, especially white male privilege, things like that. I really thought there were some good issues brought to light. I just thought it was a good way to take a deep dive into something more than just like the true crime aspect of a documentary, because like I said, it dealt with a lot of social issues. And I thought it was a good um, continuum almost of athlete A, like sometimes when I was watching it, it made me think of some of the issues that were brought up during that. And I'd always heard of the DuPonts, you know, the DuPont name is very famous, but I never knew anything about them so I really liked being able to learn about them and their family what about you Michelle what'd you think 
I thought it was another really good, crazy, true crime story. I think what makes it interesting, like you said, is the fact that this is a very rich person from a very famous family that did this crime. And I was like you, I really didn't know much about the DuPont family. So it was interesting to find out a little bit more and did a little research uh, even outside of the documentary about it. And again, it does highlight the white privilege male rich person and the influence he had. And I thought the documentary did a good job showing the decline of John E. DuPont and gave some insight into what led into the crime. And one thing mm-hmm. I really like is when they have documentaries that have a good amount of footage from the actual time of the events. And this one definitely did have a lot of those home movies and flashbacks. And I really appreciate that because it's it just makes it so much more interesting and and real. Mm -hmm. I was actually really amazed at how much real footage they had. All I could think of, I was like, are these people amateur filmmakers? Like who, who records this much of their lives? But it really benefited us and it allowed us to see the story from their perspective and really feel like we were part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I always think that too, when some of these documentaries, I think, how do they have this much footage? But, you know, sometimes they do. And I I love when they do, because I think it just makes it so interesting. So I thought we'd just delve into John E. DuPont. I, I don't always like starting talking about the, you know, the perpetrator, but I feel like we almost have to, to set the setting a little bit. So the DuPont name for anybody who isn't listening in America is very famous. Like they stated in the documentary, they're almost considered royalty, at least in the Pennsylvania area. But I know we have people who aren't always in North America anyway, who are listening to the podcast. So the DuPont fortune dates back more than 200 years and is shared among an estimated 3,500 family members. So DuPont was a prisoner during the French Revolution and that was E.I. DuPont, and he fled Europe in 1799 for America, where he founded the company that continues to make his descendants rich today. So DuPont started as a gunpowder manufacturer, later expanding into dynamite, paints, plastic, dyes, and materials. Its scientists invented nylon, Kevlar, and Teflon. Family members no longer run the company, which has evolved into a chemicals giant, but they still hold a substantial chunk of its shares. John DuPont was the youngest of four children of William DuPont Jr. and Jean Lisiter Austin. He grew up at Lisiter Hall, a mansion built in 1922 in Newton Square, Pennsylvania, by his maternal grandfather, on more than 80 hectares, that's 200 acres of land, given to his parents at their wedding by his maternal grandfather. Both his parents' families had immigrated from Europe to the United States at the beginning of the 19th century and became highly successful. So John was two when his parents divorced. He has two older sisters, Jean and Evelyn, and an older brother, Henry E. I. DuPont and a younger half-brother, William DuPont III, born of their father's second marriage. So when his parents divorced in 1941, his mother retained Lysiter Hall Farm, which is where this event took place. So John, 
actually has a doctorate in natural science. And DuPont is credited with the discovery of two dozen species of birds. And he founded the Delaware Museum of Natural History in 1957. Another interesting thing I found about him was at the age of 45, on September 3rd, 1983, DuPont married 29-year-old Gerald Wenk, an occupational therapist. So they met after he injured his hand in an auto accident, and they lived together for less than six months. And DuPont filed for divorce when they both when they had been married for 10 months. So Wenk sued DuPont for $5 million, claiming he had pointed a gun at her and tried to push her into the fireplace. So he was not necessarily uh, the most stable, <laughs> even at that time, I would say. Uh, so John developed fox catcher training facility for the Olympic athletes to train and eventually focused on wrestling, came very involved with the wrestlers that lived on the ranch. And he also competed as a wrestler. But from the documentary, we know he was not very good and people were paid off to to lose against him. So that's just a little bit of his background that I thought might give a little bit more information for our listeners. So why don't we get into a little more of the development of Team Foxcatcher? Okay, so John... Like Michelle was saying, he did have siblings, but he was much younger than them, and his parents divorced when he was quite young. So he grew up very, very lonely and isolated as a child and had no real friendships or familial connections, and he kind of immersed himself into his natural history obsession. But it was basically a big thing about John is that he seemed to be very desperate to form relationships and to find value in his life. So he turned to wrestling and tried other sports like swimming and the pentathlon. He even earned a spot in the 1976 Olympic team for pentathlon. So, you know, he kind of turned to sports to find that camaraderie and value and and kind of sense of achievement he didn't have within his own family. But in the 1980s, he established a wrestling uh, facility at his box catcher farm after becoming interested in the sport. And he became a prominent supporter of the amateur sports in the United States and a sponsor of the USA wrestling teams. So that's just something I found on Wikipedia while I was doing my research on him. So he named it Foxcatcher and Team Foxcatcher. And eventually the farm was renamed Foxcatcher Farms. And that was to pay tribute to his father's award-winning thoroughbred stable, which was very, very famous, apparently, back in the day. So he funded several Olympic training facilities and athletics programs, training programs. He believed that athletes needed to be supported financially so that they could achieve their highest potential. And he thought that we were kind of cutting athletes short by making them have to contribute and everyday society and like have jobs and then also still try and train and he saw all these countries around the world who they were doing so well at the olympics but that was their their athletes whole entire lives were just dedicated to training and he thought if we're going to become a powerhouse in the world for sports we need to bring that to america and we need to really start supporting our athletes so that we can they can reach their highest potential and he also, I think, saw the benefit of athletics. Like he was a very, wasn't a good athlete. He was very athletic, very 
much, uh, always active, exercising, always doing something active. So he, yeah, he really wanted to turn that into something that we valued as a society. So it seemed like he had the best of intentions and realized the importance of sports and fitness. And what seems to have started from a genuinely good place morphed into something a lot darker when it came to his newfound obsession with wrestling. For some reason, it just, you know, it was one of those things he just took too far. And he became deeply interested and involved with wrestling to the point where he not only had an Olympic facility on his premise, but he had the athletes living in some sort of commune where everyone was provided for solely by him and he paid their salaries and, you know, he had them living on his land their whole entire lives revolved around him. This created a huge dependency for the athletes and really limited their freedoms. So he himself was quite active and athletic, but never really good at sports. And like Michelle said, you know, he tried to become a pro wrestler later on in his life, but he didn't make it and he wasn't quite good. So I wonder if part of the reason why he became so passionate about helping athletes to train and supporting the athletics program is because of his own narcissistic reasons. Like he wanted to be the best and he wanted to be a real athlete. And the only way for him to be able to gain any athletic success is if he was holding all of the strings. So that's kind of what I thought. (laughs) Well, I think to some extent... You're probably right. It's hard to say. So did he become Mm -hmm. more and more obsessed with wrestling because he was around the wrestlers all the time? Or did he build the training facility because he already was very obsessed with wrestling? In the documentary, it seemed like he became more and more obsessed with it the more and more he was around these guys. And in the documentary, they also mentioned that as a child, he had, and a teen, he had really wanted to get into wrestling, but his parents wouldn't let him. His mother said it was like a poor man's sport kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was one of those things that he always was passionate about, but he was never allowed to pursue his passion because it was, it was seen as a, you know, ungentlemanly sport and below his social status. I know it's what do the listeners think? I don't know, guys. It's a tricky one. <laughs> I think you could be right about that sort of being seen against his social status because there are certain sports that are considered, you know, kind of the richer elite sports, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. But yeah, but I agree. Like it's something that started out as a really good idea and unfortunately didn't stay there, which is very kind of cult like, right? One thing you talked about was the whole imbalance of power that basically he was the one who kind of controlled everything. So it becomes really tricky because John holds all the money, all the power. If he just gave the money, facility, and stayed out of it, it probably would have been fine. But instead, he's going to training all the time. Then he also wanted to get coaching himself and he wanted to compete and get involved with the wrestlers and even having them over for meals and going over to their houses. So he was very involved with them socially also. So I think this is a hard situation for the athletes to manage. And they discussed that, you know, if, if John's doing good one day, then everybody's good. If he's not, then you're not right. And their his quirky behavior, I think, was fairly noticeable right from 
the beginning. Um, like you said, when he grew up, he was kind of almost like an only child. So I think he really lacked some of the social skills. But they put up with him and they tried to keep him happy again because he was the one paying all the bills. So normally this type of guy probably doesn't normally have a lot of friendships. And, you know, they commented in the documentary about he had a hard time knowing who really is his true friend and who just wants money from him, which is very hard. I can't imagine having to worry about that, although some days I would like to have that problem. But I don't think I ever will. So that's okay. (laughs) Nobody likes me for my money because there isn't any. Um, So I, I do think that was really a difficult situation because Mm -hmm. they had to just keep him happy so that they could continue to get paid, continue to do their wrestling and have access to this training facility. And think this imbalance of power is something that you just can't ignore when it comes to this whole situation. No, he had so much power that he actually created his own wrestling like league and co- and competition thing. I don't know. I can't remember the technical terms, but remember in the documentary when they said yeah. that he created that geriatric <laughs> old like the old man wrestling basically. <laughs> Um, well hey if um if a 40 year old is having a geriatric pregnancy then a 50 plus year old wrestling on the mat is doing some geriatric wrestling all righty (laughs) and so he basically created this whole entire division where it was his rules because he couldn't wrestle properly so talk about power talk about sway talk about influence what kind of person can go into a federation and be like, well, I'm just going to make my own because this is how I do things and I can't follow the rules. I know. So, it's crazy. Oh, it's huge. <laughs> like, I was shocked about that part, actually. Those athletes didn't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. So I felt so bad for them in that situation. It's difficult when you're stuck in a system or relationship with extreme power imbalances such as this. When I was watching the documentary, I was listening to how generous he was and what he was doing to quote, unquote, support the athletes. I just felt unsettled by it. I knew there was something off. You know, like when there's that much generosity, you always have to question it. When you depend so much on someone and they control all the aspects of your life, it can be very dangerous and unhealthy, especially when it comes to something like an an Olympic sport. It reminded me a lot of Athlete A, how those girls, you know, they they were being abused by their coaches and like forced to do all these things. But like that's what they had to do to get to the Olympics. And these wrestlers were in the same position. Like, Mm. you know, John kind of held the purse strings and also he had the Olympic training facility. He was helping fund, solely fund the Olympic wrestling team. So what are you going to do? You're going to, you know, you're going to do whatever you have to do to be able to compete. So Mark Schultz, we met him in the documentary. You know, we met him, guys. So we saw him in the documentary, and he was quoted as saying that DuPont treated him and the other athletes like they were his newest trophies. And if you didn't want to go along with that, then DuPont threatened to ruin them and their reputations. So there was no out for them. It was either you do what you have to do, or you're done and you never wrestle again. And that's a, a hard choice. So John's behavior 
as we kind of touched on, um, it's he's always really been erratic and eccentric. Like, he has a strong history of it. Come on, guys. He went into natural history. Like, that alone reeks of eccentricity. Oh, my gosh. No insult to anybody who studies natural history out there, listener. No, no, don't get me wrong. I love natural history, but I am eccentric as fuck. Like, (laughs) I am a weirdo. (laughs) And that's like, no, I can say that because, yeah, I know some natural history people. They're weird, but weird in a great way. Love you guys. (laughs) Michelle's going to edit this all out. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Hate nails coming. (laughs) Love you all. <laughs> but so he he had a crazy history, you know, this guy. Like, he was never normal. He had that weird relationship with his wife, if you can even call her that. Yeah. Athletes had commented on it from the beginning of his involvement in funding the sports. Just like I mentioned with Mark Schultz, like, he quickly became frustrated with DuPont and the way he treated the athletes. So he only to be replaced by his brother. Like, Dave was never the golden child until he didn't have Mark anymore. So he basically, his whole sight was on Mark from the beginning. And then when Mark wasn't willing to, you know, play the game, Dave was the the closest second. So, you know, it's just crazy. Some believe that John started his descent into madness when he lost his mother in 1988, but he'd always been incredibly eccentric and at times acted erratic before that. I just want to say, guys, I personally believe that it was the fact that he lost both of his testicles in a horseback riding accident and had been gelded at, you know, the ripe old age of being in his 40s. And so he, I think that could drive any person insane or make them weird and eccentric. So that's my theory. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did you know that, Michelle? Yes, I read that. Yeah. I can't believe you weren't going to put it in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it, has a, it plays a huge role because I think he's already someone who's fragile and then he loses his masculinity and now he's got to try even harder to like prove that he's a man, you know, like I think that could drive any person crazy. So one of uh, (laughs) I'm never going to hear the end of this one, guys. Yeah. Uh, I think Chelsea's been day drinking. (laughs) I wish. It's a long weekend. Um, But so I found a really good quote about his erratic behavior leading up to the murder of Dave. And at one point, DuPont would insist that he could see Disney characters hiding in his property or trees, uprooting themselves and marching around the estate. And he opened fire on a flock of geese because he had become convinced that they were using dark magic against him. And he removed all of the treadmills from the facility when he became convinced that they were turning back time. Like, how does anyone take this person seriously or think that they're not mentally ill? So he hired security contractors to check under his floorboards for secret tunnels and his walls for the hidden intruders. He was sure were spying on him during every moment. And there is some speculation that DuPont was under the influence of drugs and alcohol during this time period at all, which would have only exacerbated his tenuous mental state and further quickened his descent into madness. 
firmly believe that. And I'm not shocked. I could see that man doing a lot of blow. Yeah. I mean, the things that were happening and everybody could see it and everybody was aware of it. And just all the crazy examples they gave in the documentary was unbelievable. And I thought those security contractors were very interesting where they're coming up and digging up the whole estate and people said to him, like, why are you doing that? And they're like, oh, it's not for us to question this decision. Oh, OK, probably because you're getting paid lots of money. And so uh, he wants us to dig up the floorboards and dig up trees or whatever. We'll do it just to help him out. But really, it's because we're getting paid lots of money. Right. Again, that goes to the the idea of who do you trust when you're rich and you have money. Right. No, it was some Howard Hughes bullshit. Like, you know, when yeah. Howard Hughes just went crazy and everyone kind of bought into it because they were on the paycheck. Mm-hmm. It's just, and that's exactly it is. Yeah, of course I'm going to go dig a hole in the backyard because this guy's paying me a lot of money to do so. If he wants to, he wants me to spend 37 hours straight watching some movies because he thinks crazy shit's going on. Sign me up. Easiest paycheck ever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's so, what that was. For sure. There's yeah. so much. And also, I find, too, with, like, these privileged, rich, especially white men, they often get into drugs and alcohol. And, and it's kind of people just give it to them freely. Yeah. And then there, it's used as a placating tool and things like that. And no one questions it. Yeah. Oh, Michelle. And then sure. his, he was, like, besties with the police, which, of course, I was... Yeah. Like, I just couldn't even. I was like, oh, yes, of course you were their, their special little $1 a year salary boy. Yeah. Because you were a wannabe cop when you were, what, five, and you never let go of that daydream. Oh, it just made me hate him so much. I know. When, they, when that came out, I was just like, oh, and of course he has a relationship with the police. And of course the chief of police lives on the estate. Why wouldn't he? Like, really? And, and they had their little, like, police bunker there where they had that special bar and got to do whatever they wanted and, like, went hunting on his estate and no one was allowed to go hunting. And, like, he went on drive rounds with them in his little uniform. Oh, my God. And they had their training facility for their um, yes. shooting. The shooting yes, training like facility on the estate. And he- And he provided all the weaponry and stuff like that for them, too, because he was so into that with, like, Peloton and everything. Not Peloton. (laughs) This is not an ad for Peloton. (laughs) What is that? Pentathlon? Pentathlon? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. The shooting one. The Runsky shoot. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was just crazy. So, I mean, it was no shock. That the police didn't act on any of the complaints that were made about him and his bizarre behavior. Because it's not like nobody went to the police. I mean, he goes into that gym and points a gun at one of the athletes and they did nothing. Seriously? Seriously. Mm -hmm. Who else did get away with that? No one. And they were, he was probably funding the police on top of that. And then they were just his little personal army, basically. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. I think this relationship with the police really just shows his power and privilege at the highest. Money gets you whatever you want. 
Mm-hmm. You know, honestly. And if you're white and a man with money, even better. You just yeah. get like red carpet ser- service, 100%. Ugh, no. And so that was just, of course, and I'm sure it impacted the whole legal investigation when the murder mm-hmm. did happen. You know, it just yeah. goes to show. I wonder about that because they don't really talk about that in the documentary. So I kind of wondered if maybe a different police force took it over or if it was just so obvious there was nothing they could do to hide it anyway. So I'm not sure. And I think like because they had two witnesses at that point that there was no skirting around the fact that this Mm -hmm. happened. Like they, I think if they hadn't had those witnesses and we would have seen this just hushed up. He would never have gotten charged. I don't believe that at all. But I think solely because there was two witnesses, they didn't really need to investigate too much. But, oh, my gosh, the fact that they had him camped out at his house for two days after the murder and the police really didn't do much to get him out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I thought that was so weird. And I was just like, of course, they didn't try too hard. That's their bestie. They don't want to fuck up that relationship. Yeah. But so, Michelle... What about the crime and the murder? So, at the beginning of the documentary, of course, he seemed very interested in Dave. Dave with his was his man. Dave with his buddy. He was best friends with him. Having his family over to the house for meals. Seemed like he really admired him for his skill as a wrestler. And that was the one he wanted to be buddies with. But then it switched to Valo. Right? Mm-hmm. And the Bulgarian wrestler that they brought over. And I thought that was very interesting. I'm not too sure why that switch was made for him, but Valo and Dave were really good friends. So it was sort of speculated that Dave became in the way of John becoming friends with Valo. And yeah, I just don't know how that switch was made, but for some reason it was made. And John was becoming, of course, more and more paranoid and delusional at this time. Like he thought he was Bulgarian when everybody knows know. like, their families from France for many generations. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even in when they were having the standoff and he's saying like he has diplomatic papers, like, what are you talking about? You're born in the States. Like, oh my gosh, it was so crazy. So, and it was such a cold-blooded murder. It was so awful. And, mm-hmm. you know, he knew he had a family and kids. And he was close with them. But, yeah, it just he's sick. He was a sick guy, right? He was. And it was just really tragic when it happened. Because after Dave was murdered, a lot of athletes still stayed and sided with DuPont. And, like, obviously yeah. wanted the facility still. And it just is that... It's so crazy, that athletic drive. As someone who only has a drive to eat potato chips and sit on my couch, I don't understand siding with a murderer to be able to still compete in the Olympics. Just saying. Yeah. (laughs) I was just so shocked at the fact that it how it divided people and that people weren't immediately like, no, John was batshit crazy, and what he did was horrific, and now let's distance ourselves as much as possible. Like, I was shocked by that. I was very <sighs> shocked about that, too, especially because everybody seemed to really like Dave. Like, oh, everybody yes. seemed to really like him. He seemed to have a really good personality. He seemed to be friends with everybody. 
And then DuPont comes along and just shoots him point blank, very purposeful, and people aren't siding with his wife. Okay. I just found that interesting. And I was just wondering, I'm like, okay, is it just because DuPont's been so fucking erratic for so long that you're like, oh, yeah, not shocked. Moving on now. Like, this was just his latest stunt. But that's terrible. And I really hope that's not what happened. I think, like you said, I think it's all the power and the money. And they wanted to be able to keep training at this facility because this happened not too long before the Olympics, right? Yeah, it happened in 94 and the Olympics were in 96. So... Mm-hmm. They would have been basically announcing who was going quite soon. Yeah. And it's this pivotal training period. Oh, it's just crazy. Yeah. So, so I wonder if that's why they didn't take a harsher stand about it. I know. And it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, people, people in their sports. Yeah. <laughs> These athletes, man. No. <laughs> we love you athletes. Yes. Yeah. So the trial was a bit crazy as well. Obviously, like, how could it not be? Um, It just, you know, he had all this money. He was very, very rich. So, of course, he can get the best lawyers. Of course, he can try and mount the best defense. And he basically had plead that he was insane. You know, he was just mentally ill and, and, and insane at the time of the crime. So wasn't capable of making any decisions and so basically trying to get off and and they did everything they could to prove that and to like they brought in all sorts of psychiatrists and specialists and you know threw so much money at that court there's so much money at that trial to build the best argument but it didn't it didn't work which I love this was the best best part of the documentary yes it was the best part oh it was it was amazing DuPont was found to be mentally ill, but but guilty of third degree murder in early 1997. So they still believed, yes, he was mentally ill, but that he was capable of, of committing the crime and knew he had enough cognizance and he wasn't having an episode or, you know. Um, yeah, because when you yes, yeah, so he couldn't plead insanity. That's what it was. I was, I was looking for that word. So he yeah. was mentally ill, but did not plead not actually truly insane at the time. And so he was sentenced well, to not 13 incompetent. to. Yes, not so incompetent. He was mentally ill, but he was not incompetent to stand trial. Mm-hmm. And he was sentenced to 13 to 30 years in prison. Despite the series of appeals by his high powered legal team, he remained behind bars until he died um, in 2010. So. I thought it was really interesting that he got third degree murder, which is murder without premeditated intent. So it was just like spur of the moment. Exactly like you said, went up to him, killed him, didn't even think about it, didn't even think about the repercussions, didn't even plan it. Nancy Schultz actually had a civil lawsuit afterwards, too, with DuPont after that one was was figured out. She had one and she was awarded thirty five million dollars in damages. Oh, I did find that. Yeah, I actually, really cool, but I found an article from 1997 from the Washington Post that was the actual article about his trial and the announcement of the verdict. It was so cool. Wow. I felt like an investigative reporter. 
Yeah, because in the documentary, I think they didn't disclose how much she got. Yeah. It was it just is, a lawsuit for an undisclosed settlement. Which I'm not shocked because Nancy actually was one of the biggest people behind this documentary. She was one of the co-producers, like co-creators. So I'm not shocked that she kind of wanted to keep that mm-hmm. tramped down a bit. But yeah, so he died of um, acute aspiration pneumonia in 2010. And yeah, he was he- not that old. He didn't spend that much time behind bars necessarily, Mm-mm. really, which is unfortunate in a way because you feel like justice wasn't that served. But what is good about this story is that money didn't buy his freedom, right? Because when in the documentary, when the lawyer was talking, he was saying he's never had so much money to be able to put on a legal defense, right? So he had all the resources in the world that he could use to try to get him off, but it didn't work. And so often we see the rich go unpunished because of the fact they can afford lawyers. But, you know, one thing I felt really bad about, like, was the kids being interviewed and them saying that they were scared he was going to get off and come out and kill him, kill them. And because really nobody could understand why he even killed Dave. So I think it was so heartbreaking to hear that these kids were really worried that he was going to come kill them. Yeah. He actually had hired private investigators or like, you know, hitmen to follow them around and film them, the children when they were, when he was in jail. So he just had such a reach, even still in jail to terrorize oh. those children. So I'm not shocked that they felt that way and that that family felt that their lives were at risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, another twist in this documentary, is after he dies, we find out that he left 80% of his state to Vallow. So what a wild card. That? Because Vallow and Dave were good friends. Like Dave was kind of instrumental in bringing him to Foxcatcher. So what happened there? Like, so did Vallow just keep this good relationship with John the whole time? I I was really, really shocked about that. So I saw in our notes that you had an that you had looked into the will and like when it had last been updated. And I was kind of thinking, for me, I was just like, okay, first of all, not even shocked that he gave all of his money to a random wrestler. Not even shocked. I, I could see him being weird and doing that. And I think if he hadn't have murdered Dave, that Dave probably would have been the guy to inherit it. Or if he hadn't have had like his love affair with Valo, Dave would have been that guy. And I'm wondering, too, is if like before the trial, he had changed his will so that Val- on a whim, you know, well, he was all batshit crazy, coked up or something. And Valo was going to get all his money. And then once they had the trial and he was deemed mentally ill he couldn't he wasn't a right mind so he couldn't change his will again that's what I was kind of wondering too no I I did read it and sorry I probably didn't make like I read a few articles so I didn't write every single piece down but he had changed it a few times over the years and I remember one of the last times was I think while he was in prison wow I think so I could be wrong about that but his niece and nephew filed a petition contesting the will. But, and they actually had to do this several times. 
And I don't, I could not find any results from it. So I'm not sure whatever happened with it. I tried to search it several different ways and I couldn't figure it out. But they they had done like three or four times gone to court about this. And one of the th- one of the articles talked about the fact that they weren't mentioning earlier drafts of the will. Like so he had never kind of planned to leave their his estate to them for many, many years because they were saying that their uncle promised to leave this estate to them. But when they went back to old versions of his will, they weren't even inheriting his his property even years before I think it might have even before Foxcatcher even started. I'm just I just can't even with these people who are already rich, probably because of, you know, their family money. You know, there's thirty five thousand people who have family money from the DuPont estate to begin with. So they were probably cushy, perfectly fine and just hoping for the extra money from their uncle. And it's just like, how freaking gross are you (laughs) like you've got enough money you've got your parents money your family money you don't need your rich uncle's fortune too who cares that he gave it in some eccentric friggin whim to a wrestler who would never have been able to live a nice life without it you know oh my god go away (laughs) here it is they were there was five successive wills and codicils between 1990 and 1994. Um, Oh, I guess the last one was 1994 being the last to be drafted before John's DuPont's incarceration. And they weren't mentioned as the people inheriting them. At the end of the day, they were just being grasping. Yeah. They didn't deserve the money anyways. I don't know. I think it's just ridiculous. I know it's it. Yeah, it's hard. I, you know, I can kind of see it from both sides. Like on one extent, like John has a right to give his money to whoever he wants. But on the other hand, it is money that's been in that family for generations and generations. And, you know, you do kind of, I could see it from the family's point of view that that money and that estate in particular, the estate should stay in the family. But I can, I can see the argument for both sides. And I don't think per- particular because John was not mentally stable and probably really hadn't been for many, many years. The estate though remained in the family trust. It was just the money that didn't. So the, I'm Did almost it? positive. Yeah, I'm almost positive that that's why, and that's why the estate. Like, I think the family actually decided to sell the estate, and now it's being developed into housing. So, we will have to potentially do some more research about that. But I, I really feel like when I was researching, I read that it stayed in the family. But I don't know. I'm just at the end of the day, like he didn't have all the money from the family, like family trust. That was just a small portion. That was his, like his amount that he had from the family trust. It wasn't like he was the sole inheritor of the family trust at that time. It was 80% of the estate. Like whatever his estate was seen when he died, it was was 80% 80 of the estate. So Mm -hmm. it would be seemed weird to me that if he got 80% of the DuPont estate, that that wouldn't have included the property. Mm -hmm. And, that yeah. my understanding was that was part of what the 
niece and nephew are arguing about is that they were promised that that house would go to them, that that oh, okay. the grounds would that, go to them. That grounds was originally from his mother's side of the family, though. Yeah, but it not, was his in the that. end. Mm. Yeah. I know. I just can't imagine, though. Like, he only ha- it was only $43 million, and I'm just like, the DuPont wealth is worth, like, it's worth so much more than that. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, I might have just. That's just what he has, said. though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that. I mean, it's not like he owns all of the DuPont wealth. That's just what. Yes, what yes, that's he what has I was. Under his name. That's what I was saying before. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of editing. <laughs> I know. I don't know if I'll be able to really edit this to make it look, make much sense, but we might just keep our rambling in. Yeah, sorry guys. You know, sometimes this happens in podcasting. This is like a behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We're having a hard time with our facts on this one. <laughs> I think it's because it's a lot of this is kind of old, so it's not mm. sort of recent stuff that's on the internet. And I was having a hard time finding stuff, and tr- I tried so hard to get the updates, but I I really couldn't search it, find any good articles. I was still amazed I was finding articles from 1997. That alone was mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. So, Michelle, final thoughts on this? Well, I really enjoyed it just because I thought it had a lot of different twists and turns. It had a lot of, like I said, that good historical footage, which I really like. Great interviews with people who were involved at the time and their recollection of events. And just, again, glimpse into rich, privileged culture and how this works and the kind of life he led, but loved that it didn't free him in the end. Mm-hmm. I really liked that Valo inherited all that money because, like, you know, he was in that position where he was in America. His family wasn't even really able to come for a long time. And the only way that they could live in America was being supported by John. So for me, I was kind of like, yep, you guys, you guys got what you deserved after putting up with that bullshit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) I don't know. And I felt like for once the underdog kind of benefited, like, I don't know. I liked that a lot about it. I did think it was, it reminded me so much of so many more white privileged men that have all this money and are batshit crazy, but we just let it happen in society because they are white and they have money and a penis. Yep. yep. Absolutely we do. The triple threat. <laughs> <laughs> the triple threat. <laughs> it's so true, though. It is. And I'm just so sick of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point though. <laughs> just it's it's literally like, oh yeah, they're white. Oh yeah, they got lots of money. Oh yeah, they're a man. Oh, they're doing some shit. <laughs> yeah, not shocked. <laughs> oh boy. All right, but, listeners, you have to tell us your opinion on Valo inheriting the estate, because Chelsea and I kind of differ. She loves it. I'm a little bit more on the fence. Probably a little bit more towards the family's point of view. So, I, you know, I, I, and I'm sorry to bring it back up again when we're trying to close <laughs> off here. But I guess my other thought is, like, this isn't money that John 
developed and grew all his life, right? If this is something he built this wealth from nothing, then I would think, okay, you have every right to give it to whoever you want. But this is money from generations and generations and generations. So it just seems wrong to me to be giving that outside of the family. But because I don't feel like it was ever really John's money. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's funny because that's exactly why I feel like it's great that he gave it away. Because I'm like, that bitch didn't sweat ever at work. He didn't do shit. And that family has heaps of money. They have stupid money. And I think that's ridiculous. I'm so sick of these families that have had money for hundreds of years and they're still living high on the hog because of it and doing nothing and not contributing positively to society at all. So for me, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. So gosh. glad you got some of your wealth taken away and given to someone who was less fortunate, who could actually benefit and has actually worked hard. <laughs> All right. I love it. Okay, listeners, you really have to tell us what you think because I'm I'm very curious if it's just me thinking totally wrong here. This is our generational divide, Michelle. <laughs> it's, it's coming, it's coming it's- out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. So please leave us a five-star review. That really helps. And you can contact us on Twitter and Instagram at docu underscore talk and on our Gmail at docu.talk2 at gmail.com. So what are we doing next episode, Chelsea? We're going to be reviewing Okja, and I'm so excited that we are. So you definitely need to watch it. It's available on Netflix. Uh, And then you can listen to our episode so you can hear all the spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) And are, you know, disputing the facts, hopefully. We're going to have it a little better next time. Yeah. Thankfully, this one's not a real documentary. (laughs) It's just a movie. (laughs) Not too many facts. (laughs) It's it's a really great movie. And it's, um, even though it is not a documentary movie it's done in a very similar docu docu style format and it is one of those really great hard-hitting movies so watch it all right okay well thank you very much listeners i appreciate you tuning in and we'll see you next episode thank you chelsea thank you michelle and thank you (laughs) listeners for putting up with the chatty bitches (laughs) okay bye Hi.